Hello, welcome to the Do Lectures dot 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 podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Today we speak to Joshua Coombs. Joshua was a hairdresser walking home in London one day when he walked past a homeless person and decided to help them by actually giving them a haircut. That decision led to the Do Something for Nothing movement that has had such a huge impact on the homeless and the communities they live in. Please sit back, grab a coffee. Put your feet up and listen to Joshua Coombs dot dot dot. Welcome to your dot 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 do lectures podcast, Joshua Coombs. Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Gav. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, mate. Josh, you did your do lecture in 2017 and for those listeners who haven't heard it, I would urge you to go and have a look at it and listen to it. It's amazing. But to summarise, and I hope I'm not summarising too swiftly, Joshua was is a hairdresser, was walking home one day in London and decided, for reasons he's about to tell us about, that he wanted to give a haircut to a member of the homeless community. Can you fill in the gaps of that story, please, sir? Yeah, Gav, thank you again for being here, mate. And I know, obviously, in these strange times, building a connection over virtual signals via the Zoom, I appreciate you for having me, and I think that we're doing a, we're off to a great start. And the thing that got me into the work that I'm doing, which is, I guess, broadly, under this term, or these words, do something for nothing, which is representative of the work that I do and the work that many other people are doing now. It started with me giving haircuts on the street in London to people experiencing homelessness. And, you know, that was, um, it became difficult to keep walking by people, men and women, young and old, from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life. And just sort of, I suppose I wanted more of a connection to this issue. Like the articles I was reading, the statistics were, were scary. So I think we can all relate whatever city and town, wherever you're listening to this, whichever country you're in, you know, we know what it's like and the feelings that confront us when we walk by somebody who's sleeping on the street. And I think that for me, yeah, I was always looking to have a bit more of a chat. I'd buy someone a cup of tea, maybe drop some change if I had some in my pocket. But one day I had my backpack on me, I had my scissors, my clippers and everything else I needed to to go and cut someone's hair outside of work, to go to a mate's house and cut their hair. But I didn't make it because... As I stopped and I had this conversation with somebody, I sort of remembered I had my things in my bag and, you know, it wasn't the first priority. I was even aware, obviously, in that moment of somebody needing a haircut when you have not, like, you know, you haven't got somewhere to, to sleep that night. And there's a million other things you might be worried about. But this person said yes. And I think that kind of changed my trajectory completely because it gave me um, access to something I'd been overlooking for a very long time, I think, with this issue especially, which is, Okay, the haircut itself, it was great. This guy hadn't had access to that for a while. His hair was grown out. I gave him a shave and I could see that made a difference to him as far as restoring some amount of dignity and a bit of time for them to look after themselves. But the conversation was really the most important thing. The time, you know, I think we all perhaps overlooked that, you know, sitting down and having a chat. I'm kind of interested to sort of know that little moment of you know, electrons connecting in your brain. So you were walking home to see a mate, to cut his hair. Let's get right into it. Where were you? Who was this person? Did you literally just, you stopped for a chat and you were chatting and then you thought, I'm going to cut the hair or kind of really wanted to 
to get into the slow motion of that moment, if that's all right. Okay, so maybe perhaps to really rewind and think about how I felt in that particular moment the first time. It was, I think, how probably a lot of people feel, which is how best to start a conversation with someone who's clearly suffering and maybe perhaps questions like, how are you, may not seem all that relevant when clearly someone's having a bad day. Perhaps offering a smile, I may be worried too much of that might look like I'm having a good time over here and clearly you're not. So that first moment, you know, I'd, I'd usually buy someone a cup of tea or a coffee if I had the time, if I wasn't rushing to work. And this time I did the same. So say, hey, do you want something to drink or something to eat? Went to a cafe nearby, got a takeaway, a cup of coffee and, and then came back. And as I handed it to him, it was just this moment. It was a light bulb remembering that I'd cut hair for mates, perhaps in the garden before, when I was in a band actually in another life early before I was a hairdresser, before I even trained, I used to cut people's hair in the back room and that kind of thing. So this is quite a mobile skill. And I, and I had that moment, you know, seeing him and giving him this coffee. I just thought I didn't think about it too much, to be really honest. I didn't let my internal dialogue, thankfully, get in the way. Because if I did, I might have second guessed it or I might have questioned, oh, well, now that's a silly idea. Like sitting right up here on the street with all my things around, there's hundreds of people walking past, you know, it was a busy area of London. Thankfully, in that moment, I didn't. And he said, yes. It was like, oh, what? You're a hairdresser. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, God, I haven't had makeup for a year or more. Like, of course. It was almost his questions back at me that guided the experience. You know, he said, well, what are you going to do? Cut it right here on the street. And I was like, well, yeah, I suppose so. And we grabbed another bit of cardboard to sort of pad out where he was sat so he had something more to sit on. And, and I set up my things right there next to him. You know, I grabbed another bit to place all my things on. And... Yeah, it was new to me, that experience. And I'm, I'm glad that I didn't think about it too much because what then ensued was, you know, a haircut would usually take about half an hour, 45 minutes in the salon. Obviously, I didn't have all my things around me. I was making the best of it, doing it sort of in a makeshift way. In doing that, it allowed me more time to observe the setting, the isolation that's felt when hundreds of people are sort of walking past you, but more importantly, to listen. It's one of those things, you know, I live in London. There are lots of homeless people that I see daily and some of them I've become friends isn't the right word but you know I have a relationship with them I chat I stop and chat and I give them money and buy them stuff and all the things that we all do to help I have to say I've given them clothes and do all sorts of stuff you know all the stuff that you try to help I've never ever ever thought I'd give them a haircut no clearly I'm not a hairdresser but it's what I love about your story this is my assumption, having seen your two lecture, and tell me if I'm wrong. It's not really about the haircut. I mean, that's important, but it's about the connection. It's about taking the time to hear their story. It's about forming a bond. What was the moment where you thought, fuck, this is actually really powerful and special? It is all, almost hard sometimes because I, I think back to do lectures, which was what, 2017 now, it's 2021 as we speak, and things have transitioned a lot. And I started doing this probably a year or two before that. So, to really get back there and think about my role as a hairdresser, Gab, it was, I quickly realized to maybe rewind a little bit on my own story. Like, so I was playing music and different bands and stuff until about mid twenties. And then it was at that point, like I didn't get into hairdressing when I was younger or to be really honest for some great love of the industry, my band fell apart and so did a long-term relationship and I was skin and I failed my exams at school and go to college barely. So I was like, right, what do we do now? Well, I, actually, and I, I remember walking past the salon and seeing this guy checking this woman's hair, this finished haircut outside in the salon and seeing the way that he 
so creatively adored this finished look that he'd cut. And for the first time, I remember seeing this sort of like creative spark of like, oh, maybe that's something I could do. I can play guitar. How hard can it be? And I was pretty naive with that assumption. So I walked into a salon at like 24, you know, when everyone else trains when you're like 16. So it's quite an intimidating experience and, and asked for a chance, you know. And, and they said yes. And I started working as basically a shampoo boy and a sweeping up the floors in my mid-20s while I worked in bars and cafes and whatever else I could to top up my hours to be able to pay the rent. So that was a really humbling experience for me as a whole, right? From sort of nights in bars and, you know, playing and having so much kind of passion for what I did to then being sort of really brought back to this kind of humbling experience of learning to cut hair. But the point I'm getting to is I quite quickly realized my role as a hairdresser, once I got past that kind of initial like training of like getting a bit better and getting some confidence, people would talk to you in the salon too about their life and their story, you know, and it doesn't matter if I was just giving people even just, just the smallest, it wouldn't have to be some big transformation. It's like, I recognize that some people actually come in here for the chat and some people just want to come in and talk to you. Some don't, some want to just be in and out and that's great. But, you know, I was hearing about people's lives in a deeper way and learning that my role was a bit more than just the guy with the scissors, you know, that I was quite aware of. And I think then to follow on to that moment of this first haircut on the street, I remember the bus home and thinking, you know, when you have those moments in your life and you sort of just, you know, everything changes. Like in, 100%. And, and it sounds, 100%. No, it mate, sounds I so, get it. Yeah. It sounds so silly, but it was like that bus home, that journey home. I was like, I didn't even consciously think, oh, I'm going to keep doing this, but something changed. And then I kept on going out and doing it and doing it. And then within a few months, I was like, this is the stories I'm hearing and this is what I'm going to keep doing. Yeah. In my experience, there's always sort of two parts to a great idea, right? There's the there's the initial bit, which is the kind of electrons forming in your head and going, let's do that. And then there's a moment later when you reflect on the first day and you actually go, I tell you what, that's a fucking good idea. <laughs> Just, is, was it on the bus home or was it when you'd done five or ten or was it when you, there must have been a moment where you went, bloody hell, this is life-changing. That was the first time I communicated it. So I, I felt the moment in me change on the bus home and the way home as far as just being able to have this raw connection with someone that, to be really honest, has remained the most important reason for me to be able to go out and talk to people who are in a situation who needs an ear, you know, and, and need to talk to someone. But the first time I think I felt like this is a really good way to communicate this and it's a great idea is when I started posting on Instagram and I, the, when I cut hair, I take these before and after photos and it can sometimes be in this really like wild transformation. And I remember the first time I hit post on Instagram to what was like my 500 to a thousand people I had then. And immediately it just got this really big reaction of people who it dissolved the, the thing, which is this life-size barrier, I think for so many people, why they're not interacting with this, which is just like, the imagery sometimes, you know, whether it be, there's a lot of imagery with this and a lot of stigmas surrounding it. And it was like, you were seeing this person as new from left to right, from before to after. And it was like, the response was huge straight away. People started sharing it, commented loads of comments. The more I posted these stories with consent, obviously from the people that I meet to want to be able to talk about the moments we shared and their lives, it just kicked off. It was like, it was like, that was the moment I think within the first week of starting to post this, I thought, this is about more than just the haircut. And I came up with that hashtag, do something for nothing. And 
you know, I had my own reservations about sort of hashtag activism and what that really does and all that stuff. But I thought, you know what, this is just a microphone. It was like when I used to play guitar, this is my amplifier now. It's just like the content's key. The intention is everything. This is just about trying to turn it up a few notches and, and share it with a few more people. Because I, I know other people felt the same as me. And I knew from the comments, so I was like, fuck, so many people are walking around and they're so compassionate towards this, but they're just like, they've taken the pill of, and it's not their fault of being scared of this of what someone whose life might look really different from the outside because of all of the complicated issues and acute stress that comes with this. And underneath you just got this person. And when you whip off, you know, and do a new haircut and you see someone's eyes brighter and the shoulders back a bit, you just felt like everyone felt the same as me, which was, we got to see beyond that. We got to see what's underneath, have the conversation, listen. You were listening to the do lectures dot, dot, dot podcast with Gav Thompson. So, so tell me how it unfolded. I mean, maybe let's do the rigour of the dot, dot, dot format. So you did our lecture in 2017, four years ago. Fill us in on what has happened the last four years and your journey from what's an amazing movement you've started, Do Something or Nothing, your book. We'll talk about your book in a minute. Tell us about the last four years. Of course, mate. Yeah, so the um, since work, so what started is me, you know, going out on my day off and working in a salon. I think it is hard for me to sort of work out what I was really doing at the time because I was getting emails from social media growing and more people getting involved and more emails for people wanting to get involved or really telling me about what they were doing and they picked this up in their own way whether that be students you know going in to have lunch with um, senior citizens who don't have any family and just taking the time to spend time with people in the neighborhood or yoga teachers going into drug rehabilitation centers to volunteer their time just this little spark of people recognizing either the things they're passionate about or the skills they have and sharing those to the individuals or groups and the people who they want to help in their community. That's a nice shortcut sometimes. Volunteering your time is great. You know, you can go to a soup kitchen or do whatever you want or donate money. That's important too. But it was all those people who send emails that maybe think, okay, hang on. I'm still a hairdresser, but things are getting busy. And I decided to quit my job after about a few months. I'd used up all my holiday trying to go on these little trips to different cities in the UK. Then I went to Paris. I've got a few friends there and took my backpack with me. A mate helped me translate. And yeah, the more I traveled and did this, I realized I've got to keep doing it. So I left my job in the salon. I haven't been back since. I haven't really been paid for a haircut, to be honest, for about the last six years. And the way that that's got from that point to now is like anything. It's like an entrepreneurial journey of risks and not knowing what the fuck you're doing and just believing in what it is. And thankfully working with different brands and people who've invited me to give talks, obviously the do lectures was a huge important part of that because of the network there and the visibility. And I think the credibility that I think it has as a, um, as a network and the ethos behind it, that was really helpful, you know, because talks is the way I actually pay the bills now, like giving talks in sometimes it's a freebie, of course, but like, giving talks at startups and corporates and schools and universities and stuff. So that's kind of the way that I've been able to keep talking about this. I'll talk about addiction, mental health issues that go with it, destigmatize this completely, I think, within a sort of 45-minute talk for anybody who has fixed opinions about this issue, anecdotes, personal stories, and, um, and talk about the movement and the power of obviously what can be a very negative place sometimes social media the positivity i've found the people i've found who will pick you up from airports who will you know help you out cook for you when you go to a new city who will come out with you and translate take photos and help spread the message in a really condensed format basically it's grown from me on the streets of london and posting on instagram to 
traveling to 20 different countries. I always take my backpack with me and putting on art exhibitions with friends, finding new ways to just communicate this because at the crux of this isn't just homelessness. It's about the human condition. It's about people. For me, this isn't as linear as just homelessness. Yes, I want to have the political conversation surrounding that specifically, but we've got to better understand the person next to each other, not from the outside, but from in here, like from inside our heads and the trauma and the pain and the suffering we go through. It locks people away in, in a really difficult place sometimes. And, I, and I've seen, Gav, like the way that like the haircut, it's not just that for me sometimes, you know, it's going back and cutting hair two, three times, walking the walk, trying to go to the appointment with people. A lot of people, mate, just haven't had an arm around them for ages. They're just lacking self-belief. They've just lived in another world for a long time where people trust, forget about that word. Like they distrust everything and everyone. So it's just a journey sometimes. And I've really seen it come good with some people. So yeah, homelessness, yeah. But underneath that, it's just better at understanding the things we go through and how to holistically help people out of them. I mean, one of the things I've observed, and I was very fortunate enough many years ago, early in my career, to work with a homeless charity who had a really simple idea, which was that there's loads of empty homes in the country. And actually, if you are homeless and you want a home, why don't we just match homeless people up with empty homes? It's called the Empty Homes Agency. And they actually did a massive thing. There was a point in time, I think it was a Labour government, I think it was Gordon Brown, and Tony Blair, who they actually did manage to get homeless numbers hugely down. Good on them. I'm not very political, but good on them. The thing I've sort of observed recently, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to have a pop at, it's no political party, is there are a lot more homeless people on the streets of London. I live here, I see that. The thing that's interesting is I, I think I know what's the resources available to them, but they're still around. And I think the thing that I sometimes hear from, I guess, friends of mine is, you know, you go, Bob, right? Bob's on the street and, you know, Bob's still on the street after a year or two years and people go, well, I've given Bob loads of money. Why is he still on the street? And he's a bit aggressive and he's a bit short with me. He goes, yes, because he's got mental health issues and he's been on the street for X years and he's on the street because he watched his wife get murdered by somebody. I'm making this up, you know what I mean? Of course he's got mental health issues and of course he's not just going to bounce off the street because we've given him some money. And I get, I'm just kind of interested not for you to try and solve homelessness in this conversation, but it's such a complicated issue and it is so multifaceted. How do you not get sort of fucked off about it? Do you see what I mean? How do you kind of chunk it down to make sure that you're, you go home every day thinking you've made a positive impact? I've learned to set my benchmark actually pretty low, to be honest, mate. Like I, and, I, and to unpack that, what I mean is we have this terrible habit as people, I think, to look at a certain issue and feel like we need to find the complete answer and the complete solution. I've seen amazing results through just someone bothering to stop and have a conversation and go back and build trust with somebody and the way that that can turn really good. And people I speak to on the phone now who, who are living comparatively a very happy, healthy life. And that's not to pat myself on the back as Joshua and me and my influence, but it's just to recognize that we can all do that. Now, if I look at the next, or let's go back first. If I look at the last six years and then look forward to the next five or six or whatever, like, of course, I want to see less people on the street. Of course, I want to see, guess, a collective awakening for the kind of the things that I see as quite simple changes that could be made to be able to like 
if not eradicate, but definitely very much improve people's lives in this situation. But in the meantime, the way that I go home feeling happy or at least feeling not completely fucking awful is like recognizing that like no one can take away that part from me, the, the influence that I can, what I can give to someone. I get as gutted and as disillusioned as anyone when I scroll through Twitter and see all the negative things that are happening or whatever news you want to consume. But I try and shake it off because I'm like, nah, fuck that. Like, that's the world. And I, I, I want to do more to help that. But I've got to concentrate on what I can do. I'm interested in the energy that that can bring. Like, if you wake up every day, I want to be energized. I want to be not fatigued by all of this stuff. And it's so easy to fall into that spiral. And I've been there during this time. I'm not going to lie. It's not all been plain sailing. Like, there's been times I've felt exactly like you said. But I think what I do now is I set my benchmark lower and realize, like, if I can help somebody this month, that's amazing. I think it's a really, you said it in your do lecture, you've just said it then, it's really important to acknowledge that you're not here to try and solve the problem of homelessness, right? You're here to do your bit to improve the lives of some people in a certain way and fucking good on you because and you know that there are lots of amazing things happen by what you do and the viral effect of what you're doing. And I think that's just a really important message to land where when you've got these problems, like homelessness, it's easy to just go, fuck, it's all too complicated and, and I need to, you know, I, I, can't, I can't engage with this, I can't solve it. And I get that a bit again from my friends. We're not trying to solve it, we're just trying to maybe make one person's life a little bit better today than it was yesterday. Mm. And if we can do that, fucking happy days. Yeah, and also how did anyone change anything or solve anything anyway? It's building blocks, man. Like It's like... It's not like it's arrogant to say, oh, yeah, I'd love to be able to look down the line and like to see at least where they started and you know, where I've lived for a long time, London, for to see a, a vast improvement in this. Like, I want to, I visualize that and I want it, but it's like you've got to start with building blocks. And like, look, I see the ripple that's happened through not just the work that I've done, but through social media in general. Like, there's so many issues now that I think are being humanized and it's the power of storytelling and the power of doing that. And I think, uh, Again, as long as your intention is there, and it, it, I think I think so many amazing people, photographers, artists, activists of any kind, like now, have this voice and this the setting, this kind of this beacon for many people. So I'm positive because even I see, I think, a bit of a shift in the mentality of understanding, say, take homelessness. Because let's specify on, on that and the work that I do. It's like I do think things are changing in the sense of like more people do realize now, like oh yeah, this isn't this just this typical image I had like of this old guy with a bottle in his hand and this big beard on the street. And it's like, he just wants to be there. Like the reason I wrote the book, you know, is because these kind of issues, it's hard sometimes with the limited captions of social media to be able to really get in deeper. And, you know, in the book, you get a bunch of different countries, a bunch of different people from all kinds of walks of life and all kinds of different stories. And it just, within however many thousand words, it's like, it kind of takes you, just anyone who reads that book I just know that's not to blow my trumpet it's just like you can't finish it without going oh yeah this is anyone and everybody and even and the reason just on that point to finish it the reason for that is the conversation I try and have here is like people who have or not have not whether you have everything you need and a massive amount of disposable income or you're right on the poverty line there's something that I think we can meet on which is like pain and trauma and the things that happen to us you see that person speeding 
down the street with his Lamborghini, like he might be thinking about wrapping up that around the next tree. You don't know what's going on in his mind or in his life. You don't know what's just happened to him. And I just try and have a conversation that's an emotional one, a human conversation. So I'm the same as you, mate. I try to steer away from the political conversation. I don't get lost in that. I'm interested in everybody and the places we can meet to sort of to try and circle around that conversation instead. One of the things that I often reflect on when I'm talking to these guys is a couple of bad decisions that I would have made, I'd be in their place. A couple of better decisions they would have made, they'd be in my place. You know, it's not, they're not better people or worse people than me. They've just had a bit of bad luck and a few bad decisions, right? And particularly when it involves alcohol and drugs. Frankly, if I was sitting on the street and sleeping on the street, I would want every fucking mind-numbing substance known to mankind to get me through it. You know what I mean? And then we all look at them and go, oh, he's, yeah, he's an alcoholic, he's doing smack. Yes, because oh, he lives on the freaking street. Comes from slack. It's nuts. Yeah, but that is such an, and you know, I mean, without veering completely off into like, because obviously I talk a lot about addiction and, and I think I talk a, a lot of, about addiction and I think that is probably the biggest stigma that I think is really important to dissolve to get people to see this differently. But I think just really quickly about like, some of the misconceptions about that it's just like you said well firstly the conditions themselves if oblivion is preferable than reality and you see that in so many people it's like that is not recreational drug use like there's nobody i'm seeing and i through the years i've done this using drugs and having a laugh, have a laugh. no they're not and, exactly and to get off it's a numb or it's to, to get through the next three or four basic, hours without to get through man yeah exactly you know so there's that but there's also one thing I'd like any listeners to think about as well, and I'm sure your audience is like beautifully compassionate and empathetic too, but then to be able to have this conversation to other people is like, imagine your life's played outside 24-7 like a theatre to people. I get the privilege and privacy that comes with locking my door at the end of the day, ugliest parts of myself, whether that's an argument with my girlfriend or, or when I was younger, someone in my family, or it might be for people at work. You know, when you think back the next day and you think, fuck, I just, I'm ashamed of what, or what I said there and I wish I could take it back and I'm trying to work to be better. Imagine that being on the street all the time in front of everybody. Imagine sometimes not having a place to take a shit and having to find somewhere to do that. I mean, it's like literally your everything is is outside most of the time. So that's something to think about too. You know, when you see someone arguing or being angry, think back, don't think, would you do that out on the street? Think, have you ever been angry or ever had an argument with someone? And then lastly, like mistakes and bad choices. Well, sure. Fuck, I've made plenty of them, man. I've made plenty of them and without people around me to be able to like give me a hand up during that time or that period, you're right, it could take all kinds of different directions. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy you, you touched on that point. No, dude, I mean, look, my advice to people who were sitting there going, mm, really? Is next time you walk past a homeless person, stop and talk to them, buy them a coffee, sit down on the pavement with them and listen to their story. I've done that many, many, many times. And every single time I've done it, there isn't a single version of their story that couldn't be my story with a couple of either bad decisions or a bad bit of bad luck in the middle. That's it. They're not bad people. They're just, they've ended up in this situation, usually for, as you said, horrible kind of trauma, emotional trauma, bad decisions. If you're on the street, you have to find a way to get through it, to numb the pain. It just is. And it's, we all need to look past that. 
And it's, yeah, man, I, yeah, you know, amen. And it's not always easy. And, you know, there's neighborhoods I've been in, especially in, in other countries, as far as like not just the UK, where you get tent encampments, places in America where it's a challenge, man. It's a lot of suffering all going on at once and people with all kinds of issues. And, you know, not just, I mean, smack would be a walk in the park dealing with just people who are addicted to heroin. I mean, crystal meth, the whole other thing. And I, and I think my experience a lot with people quite closely now spending a lot of time with people who are who are really battling kind of some of the worst of their demons through drug misuse is like sometimes you just remove all i'll be honest like like it's like life i often say like i don't want to ever just glorify everybody i meet like you're going to meet assholes any walk of life you're going to meet people who are out to get you and are going to steal your wallet and Sometimes when I give a talk, people ask me, like, oh, have you ever been in any scary situations? And I'm like, well, yeah, but like none of scary is getting beaten up outside a club. Like I've been like beaten up outside a club before. I mean, not that I really went to clubs. A couple of times like I got dragged to like a proper club club. I got like beaten up properly by like five or six people once. And I was like, I've been in like some of the worst neighborhoods in most of like places I go to and travel to. And it's like, I have never experienced something similar. So it's like, wherever you go, there's danger. Wherever you go, there's people who are out to get you. But just use the same logic and intuition and instinct that you would in any situation. And that's what I do. It's not about homeless or not. Imagine how stupid if we used the word home to identify somebody. Imagine everyone who has a house. I will chuck them into this category to... Yeah, the home community. Oh, no, one time, one of the home community, I tried to help them out and they threw it right back in my face. So I'm, I'm never helping them again. You know what I'm saying, man? I mean, come on. I've got a couple more questions before we end. Firstly, tell us about the book. I mean, you've written a book, Do Something for Nothing. I think it's fair to say it's become a movement. So yeah, tell us about the book and tell us about the movement. And the book, I think, was always on the horizon for me from early days because I wanted to be able to express this more. Not that I, um, you know, fancy myself much of a writer, but that came about through, yeah, I just wanted to talk about the things we have further and in more detail and do something for nothing is um, a stories from the street, from London, throughout Europe, to lots of cities in America, Australia, India, Mexico, a few other places. And it was just where I was at the time and people I met. And it's not a collection I've slotted in all these different stories. It's just people I met in the run-up to making it and um and it was amazing to get it together and i suppose i'm thankful and again very privileged and lucky that i had somewhere to where i lived in london me and my girlfriend jazz and a couple of housemates shared the house in peckham at the time and i wrote the book just as soon as lockdown came and it was published a few months ago in june um yeah so that's available in the uk and this is a not-for-profit book so i don't get any of the um proceeds and and honestly it's a good one to share with your friends and pass it on. I bought one for my nephew. He doesn't know this yet, but he's getting it for his birthday present on Saturday. Ah, oh, cheers, Gav. I appreciate <laughs> that, mate. Thank you, man. Thank you. He's going to say, oh, thanks a lot. God, well, I'm really happy with this educational book. No, the truth is, though, it's, it's the people I met and then it's, you know, it's very visual because the before and after and the haircuts are in there. So it's got an appeal visually, but also then, of course, like, you know, to get in deeper with the stories. Well, this is a two-part question. So question one is, Give us some examples of other people that have managed to take on the the mantra of do something for nothing and has got good stories to tell. Okay, so, I mean, there's people I've met along my way who are already kind of doing some things, like one of them I'd like to mention, and then I can think, uh, you know, I can talk about someone else who's taken this on. But, you know, throughout my journey, there's people in different cities who 
more importantly, like the haircut, as we mentioned earlier, using this time and, and what that means. And there's a guy I know called Paul Avila, and he's um, someone who lives in Los Angeles, grew up there. And he started to go down to Skid Row, similar time as I did. And, you know, again, if no one knows Skid Row in Los Angeles, it's like one of the most dehumanized places and forgotten about places with this tent encampment and lots of people wandering the streets there. And I started with him going down. He had this idea that he'll go down at nighttime because people would trust him more then because they know that he's real and he's not just one of these charity people going down, which is a pretty like radical idea and quite a, a risky one. But he started going down there and doing this. And honestly, man, the way he's built trust and humanizing this community over there, whenever I go over there, we go out together. Now he runs these give drop days where he gets people from LA being sometimes some of the most superficial and dare I say, perhaps in their own bubble, people living in different neighborhoods. He gets people down to this neighborhood who would otherwise never have seen it, always drive through. I've been out with him now. There's this convoy of cars that go down there at the weekend and they just stop and they chat to people and they buy a bunch of pizzas and they have clothes to give and they have whatever people need and they get to know people on this personal level. And there's enough people that they get to know people now what they really need, what they want. And, and anyway, the biggest thing there is what I see is in some of what can be like a most such a vapid place from the outside he's literally bridging a social gap and it's super inspiring but as far as like what i do and do something for nothing look yeah there's been my friend Aji in paris she started a group called la Routon and she's taken the mantle there which is having people go out on the street and help people and they've had barbers and hairdressers go out in, in the city there but my friend jade yes yeah, she's a vet who we started going out on the street together early days um in london and when i cut hair she'd look after animals people experiencing homelessness who have pets and dogs and from her working in a practice in North London five six years later she's created Street Vet UK which goes from strength to strength she quit her job in the early days I'm really good at pe making people do that and you know now she's doing what she's doing so look there's all kinds of skills in between like the hashtag's been yoga teachers Zumba instructors people doing food people doing all kinds of stuff but look the way I always say, especially in schools, because it might sound a little bit like putting it down to sort of an exercise in, in these terms, but I always say just write down the three things that really get you out of bed in the morning. The things you enjoy, they could be your hobbies even, or they could be things you're really good at, but write down next to that the areas you see in your community, like close to you in your surroundings, that things you might want to change. It might not be people, it might be the environment, it might be whatever, but try and like join those dots, you know, try and find your version of what change looks like within your community. Cause I think that can be really powerful. I'm not saying don't volunteer with someone who's doing it similarly, but I think the personal transition you can go on through that is, is really important to me. I guess, look, let's end on a story. Is there a story of, you know, just how your little intervention can actually change a life, right? I love all that whole sliding doors, butterfly effect sort of notion and you going and cutting someone's hair, give us a little story of how your intervention has changed someone's life. Definitely. Well, I'll talk about someone who's just recently transitioned to um, you know, a far more positive place. So it was November 2019. I was walking down the Strand on a cold winter's night. I'd never usually be in that part of London, but I was getting my phone fixed. I had about an hour spare. And uh, without staring at a screen and sitting in the cafe, I just was walking around and I saw... A lady, and she was about my age in her 30s, sat down with her, her little dog and she was on the street and clearly homeless. And I stopped to speak with her. And after a couple of minutes talking, we had this really serendipitous moment, which was she said, Josh, you're the barber, right? And I was like, yeah. So how do you know my name? And then I recognized her name, Levain. 
And I went, oh, your Nick's boyfriend. And it was someone whose hair I'd cut on the street, someone I'd met who was homeless. And, and it happened to be a boyfriend. Unfortunately, Nick left us about six months before that. He, he died. And we'd never met while we knew Nick, who was her, actually her fiance at the time. And anyway, from that moment and having a conversation and getting to know each other through a haircut for Levine and then you know, finding somewhere for her to stay when lockdown came. I did a fundraiser and amazing people on Instagram all came up and we raised a bunch of money to get her inside in a hostel for a few months. And to be really honest, Gavis, you know, we're friends now. We talk every week. We're always on WhatsApp and through getting her through a lot of trauma, it wasn't just the death of her, her partner. It was also a lot of abuse when she was younger as a child. Just literally about four weeks ago, she started working at a cafe in Crystal Palace. I put up an Instagram post. Levain was finally ready to sort of really get things going again. And she used to actually be a teacher herself, like a special needs teacher, a teaching assistant anyway, before she ended up on the street. She got a job just about four weeks ago. And literally, I'm getting texts every day telling me how she literally feels like a completely different person. Her confidence is coming back. She's a natural. She's just back with it. And, you know, it's been a rough time. And as I said, that's two, nearly two years, you know? So this is not an easy fix for some people. What happened initially was for me getting to know each other, building trust. She's my friend now and she knows I'll tell her how it is. And she's there for me and tells me like it is. But to see transitions like that is just super important for me. So, so yeah. It's a really powerful story. I would urge lots of our listeners to engage with members of the homeless community. And, and again, I, I have a similar thing. I When I was having a few problems a few years ago, I ended up getting some of the best advice I got from a guy who sits outside Tesco every day. He actually got my problem and actually really helped me. And I'm forever grateful for him for that. But that's amazing. You know what, just on that really quickly, like very very important point like i don't go out and do what i do and the same as you have that conversation because i'm the helper or i'm the only giver it's about trying to set a level playing field like i don't go out with a have and have not i'm of course recognizing the difference in someone's life and what i have and what they don't but i want to try and walk a couple steps of empathy with someone and i also want to listen and and learn And, and people have given me similar advice too you know i don't know it all i'm out there to learn to be to engage and and people have a lot to give and a hell of a lot of wisdom, a hell of a lot of wisdom to share. When you're at the bottom of the, of the barrel, you know? Josh, just tell us how our listeners can either get involved or help you buy the book, Insta, all that good stuff. Go. Well, yeah. In the do lectures, I think on the side, it's sprayed up on the wall, stay curious or something along those lines. And I think just remain curious, remain curious to the people around you. Keep doors open. I know it may sound cliche, but in this case, the things that I used to think were completely irrelevant for people in this situation like smile how are you hello can i sit down and have a conversation that shit means everything when someone's sometimes really really up against it so start there but also you know just to finalize if anybody listens to this look i know that what i'm doing now is just what we all do it's an inherent part of us this can be a phone call to your mate it can be looking out for someone in a whole other scenario, in a work scenario, it looks like they're not doing okay. Just just leaving them that little bit of extra bit of love, whatever it is, just showing that person, you know? Like, our mental health is intertwined. And what I'm doing is just what a lot of people do in their own life when they have this time, which is trying to be available for the person in front of you. Talk about the people who are doing something for nothing in your community. Buy the book if you like. I appreciate you. Cheers, Kev. Cheers, dude. Look, it's a freaking pleasure to speak to you. I'm a massive fan Dude, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us. 
Joshua Coombs, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Cheers. Wow. If ever there was somebody who could make an impact into something so big and important and intractable by doing something so small, then it was Joshua Coombs. I hope you like that story. I'm slightly in awe of it, as I hope you can hear. Please do get involved in the Do Something For Nothing movement. Please do buy his book. He's an amazing guy and his story is very powerful. We're coming to the end of this season. This is the penultimate episode of Dot Dot Dot. Next week is the last episode, but excitingly, we have a new season starting soon. Season four, entitled Living Your Best Life, where we will be speaking to people who are living their best life. L-Y-B-L. It's really exciting. We've got some great guests lined up, so please stick with us. Stay tuned. We'll let you know when the new series drops. In the meantime, thank you for listening. This show is produced by George McDonough. The music is by James Morton. And please do leave us a review, subscribe, and drop me a line at gav at thedolectures.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. (laughs)